This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. This week, we are continuing our series on the theme of democracy and technology by bringing you a conversation with Ram Fish on the impact of social media on democratic institutions and civil discourse. Ram Fish is the CEO of 19 Labs. Throughout his career in Apple, Samsung, Nokia, as well as co-founder CEO of three startups, he specializes in leading interdisciplinary special consumer projects, bridging technology, consumer needs, and business and regulatory constraints. Mr. Fish has an MBA from Yale University, as well as computer engineering bachelor's and master's degrees from Case Western Reserve University, where he is also a lecturer in technology management. He has authored many articles on the topic of democracy, ethics, and technology, including, most recently, Twitter fact-checking Trump, good intentions, wrong approach, and a proposal for how to do it right, and Four Proposals to Neutralize Social Media's Threat to Democracy, co-authored with law professor Shiman Keitner. Hi, Ram. Glad to be here. So, Ram, I want to dive right into it. You describe yourself as a digital carpenter. Your words, not mine. You're involved with so many different areas of tech, from digital healthcare and telemedicine to social media criticism to international policy. I thought I would start by asking you about how you got interested in our topic today, which is the intersection of social media, the attention economy, and democracy. What led you to want to think as deeply as you have or to write and to, to really spend a lot of your time and your attention on this intersection? Thank you. I'm uh, absolutely delighted uh, to join you, Deb. At uh, college, when I studied computer engineering, my favorite t-shirt had a nice message on it of engineering, turning ideas into reality. And throughout my career, it's something I feel very passionate about, about how you can take use technology, build something with it, engineer something with it, and turn it into reality. And I've done it at Apple, done it at Samsung, done it at Nokia, done it at three startups I've been involved. And what I'm usually good at is connecting a lot of different dots from different disciplines. That's what you need when you need to create new products, new experiences. About 10 years ago, 15 years ago, in a visit to London, I ended up by chance watching a play called Copenhagen, highly recommended, that discussed a meeting that happened in World War II between Heisenberg, who was leading the German uh, nuclear program, and Bohr, who ended up escaping Denmark about a year after the meeting and joining the program in Los Alamos. And the play is a really deep dive into the ethical consideration that we need to think about as we build new things. Take into account that that was in nuclear and that was in eight years ago. And a couple of years ago, the former head of the Israeli Mossad said that cyber is mightier than nuclear. The anonymity, the potential, the inherent characteristics of what you can do in cyber, both in terms of damage as well as manipulating people, making cyber so much stronger and dangerous or tool for good than nuclear was. 
putting it together, I care deep, deeply about the ethical dimensions of what technology does and what I build and people I teach, people I work with uh, do. And hence, multiple times in the last five years, I felt, you know, I should, uh, even though social media is not where I spend morning to evening, I should make some reflection from the point of strength of product design about what can we do to adapt or make social media work for us. So technology and social media become our slave rather than we become the slave to the social media. There are two thinkers here that I think are really important. The first is somebody I know you you talk a lot about, Tim Wu, who quotes the great psychologist William James in saying, we are at the end of our lives, the sum of what we have paid attention to. And so it's incredibly important to think about what we pay attention to, because that is what the sum of our lives amounts to. The thing that I think about over and over again that I tell my students is that before we can build anything, we first have to imagine it. And so paying attention to how we imagine is incredibly important to thinking about what it is that we end up building, that there's a link between how we imagine what we build. And so linking Henry James together with this idea that before we can build anything, we first have to imagine it. I'm really interested in the ways in which our attention and what we pay attention to and how we imagine has been cultivated, changed, shifted by social media. You cite the thinker, Dr. Micha Goodman, who shows that there has been a breakdown of civil society over the past 20 years, precisely for this reason, that we are factious in how we imagine, that we are polarized in what we think of how we build, and certainly we're paying attention to, as a political society, different things. Of course, this is exactly the situation we find ourselves in in the United States. But as Dr. Michael Goodman's argument shows, it isn't about anything going on specifically in American culture. This isn't a national phenomenon, but rather it's something that's happening everywhere. And that I think, or at least I've heard you say, leads you to argue that this really isn't an argument about what the nation is paying attention to or how the nation itself imagines, but this is a breakdown in civil society at large by way of a breakdown in the medium of communication, the public square, a term that we have typically used to describe public and communal speech, the sharing of ideas. But as you talk about it, we are increasingly becoming the private square. Can you talk a little bit about what you see happening in the private square? How does the private square change how we build, how we imagine, what we pay attention to? Thank you. And and yes, a lot of the credit goes to Dr. Goodman. It goes to Nicholas Carr and so many others who have brought up different points that I've been trying to synthesize together. Goodman is a credit Canadian communication theorist, uh, Marshall McCullaghan, who came up with the expression that the medium is the message. And that was in the 60s. His point was that we can't just think about the message as something neutral or the medium as something neutral. The way things are communicated affects how they are being received. And especially when we see a global phenomenon where so many Western democracies are becoming more and more bipolar, uh, breaking apart to almost the edge of civil war. The question is, hey, what is the commonality in here? And the commonality that many are pointing out is that there is an issue with how what used to be a public square, exchanges of ideas, news and communication between people uh, and communities 
have broken down. Uh, the public square, the way we observe media, has become something that, first of all, is not public anymore. It's something that's owned and controlled by very few individuals. It's not a square in a town. It's not a square in a city. It's not even a square in a country. It's global. It amazed me how I visited a, a very small kibbutz up north in Israel a few months ago. And as I walked in and sat down, the kibbutz member in his late 60s was sitting and watching Fox News. And as we ventured to discuss what he was watching, I realized that he was squarely in the camp of Fox News. This is taking it outside of a nation. It's, it's a global influence that a single individual has, that as far away as you can get from a public square as you can imagine. Now, the other part is that the communication is personalized to trigger our emotions. Lies are much more interesting than truth. Fear gets us grabbed to our seat. The fact that they can personalize, and this is not necessarily intentional, but this is the result of an algorithm that's trying to maximize our attention because every minute of our attention is money. So the result, and I'm going to be a little bit politically incorrect here, is this is not even a private square. The public square has turned the media into something that, unfortunately, I can best describe as a private lap dance. It's something that takes over our minds, glues us, uh, removes our ability to have a discourse and have a rational discussion. So I know this expression might be offensive to some, but if I'm trying to think about the experience of uh, observing social media, or to some extent even some of the commercial media that has been very much influenced by the attention economy, the public square, the way the founders have envisioned it, is gone. I mean, this is really interesting to me because some of the features of the private square that the experts that you cite, Goodman, Tim Wu, Daniel Kahneman, to name three, talk about mobilizing political polarization in the ways that you've just discussed. Those ways are pretty well known. The algorithms in social media or this private square re reward content that's emotionally provocative, since we tend to want to engage things that are emotionally provocative. I'll use your phrase, not mine. This lap dance, so to speak. That lap dance includes information information that confirms beliefs that we already hold, since we're more likely to think things that we already believe are true or correct. It rewards fictions because fictional stories uh, don't have to cohere with facts. It can be much more sensational or spectacular. And of course, social media platforms do this to a spectacular degree because they can target people and they can give and deliver those people specific information as, as the result of the data that they collect. But, but I guess my question here is, aren't these things already things that other forms of media already do? You know, you talk about the man on the kibbutz watching Fox News. That isn't social media. That is media, media. That is more traditional media. That's television. And so don't our newspapers, our TV, our radio already give us provocative, sensational, and often pandering stories? What is fundamentally new or different about social media and the threat that social media poses to democracy? I would say that there are three differences. One is, first of all, the economics, uh, the ability to, with a zero marginal cost or almost zero marginal cost, 
customize the experience to your specific hot buttons. The cost in which Amplify content is drastically different in uh, social media. And when you put those two together, that at least in the US, the accountability of media is very different. You see how the US is suffering from this more uh, than other countries. You, you see some European countries that have different rules around libel and free speech, Germany, UK, France, not suffering as much from this polarization as much as uh, it is in the US. Still suffering, but the extent is uh, different. So I think this fundamental difference in economics and accountability uh, resulted that social media basically broke the house. And very quickly, regular mass media, which is also driven by attention, not, you, you know, there's a fundamental difference between PBS and Fox or MSNBC that are paid for by attention, by advertisement, realize that, you know, defenses are all removed. We can say whatever we want and we, we don't have to remain as a news organization. We are in entertainment. So you can decide what who's chicken and egg and both mass attention media as well as social attention media causing much of this polarization. But uh, the news industry to some extent today has become an entertainment industry. Yeah, I mean, this is, I think, core to the question that we're trying to get at here, which is the relationship between the attention economy and democracy and the impact of attention economy for democracy. And I think oftentimes I have this conversation with people and they want to say, well, it does this. You know, it is the fact that social media targets individuals or it is the fact that social media prioritizes and privileges uh, and incentivizes uh, provocation. And I think that we have to be sophisticated enough here to say that there, there's a danger in locating one specific factor. But to put a few at least on our dartboard here so that we have some things to point at, you know, I would turn to a, a couple of previous guests that I've had on this show. Malka Older, a science fiction writer and a person uh, very much involved in disaster relief, has a science fiction book she calls Infomocracy. And she imagines what it would look like if our nation state, you know, devolved into different kinds of states organized by shared information bubbles. And I thought, what a provocative premise to have as a science fiction novel, the idea that people organize themselves not by a shared space, not by a shared geography, not by a shared locality, but a shared information set. I had a conversation with a good friend of mine. He's Nigerian. And he was telling me, you know, he likes to go on Twitter because Black Twitter has more in common with him than oftentimes the people who are living around him in Oakland. I said, yeah, sure. Until Oakland's on fire and your house is burning down and your neighbor's house is burning down. Then you have a lot more in common with your neighbor. And and you don't want to go to Black Twitter and say, can you send a fire department? You want to have a municipality that does that. And what we're in right now, I think, is a crisis of locality. People are paying much more attention to news happening in Washington than they are to news happening on the ground in their own location. This is aided and abetted by the fact that journalistic enterprises are being shut down. They're running out of money on the local level. And so we're organizing ourselves much more in these kind of dispersed information bubbles that, that really don't uh, attend to community on the local ground. Again, I don't want to say that there is uh, one specific thing that is the factor or the thing that we should hold on to in terms of what about social media and the attention economy is ruining democracy, but just to put a few out there. What do you think of this kind of premise or thesis? Or how would you think about the relationship between this kind of like geographical dispersion and our failing democracy? A country is about bringing people together. 
so they can cooperate and improve the welfare of the whole country or the whole community. The attention economy, and again, this is not something that, you know, Zuckerberg intentionally designed or Twitter wanted to achieve. But if you are making money on one's attention and you have an algorithm that's maximizing attention because you're maximizing revenues, then you will end up showing content that grabs attention. And this content, as we talked earlier, lies, fear, unfairness, these are the things that grabs attention. So inherently in an attention economy is the breaking down into silos. So when we realize that this kind of attention economy is inherently incompatible with a functioning democracy. And I think we're getting right now to the kernel of things, which is to ask this fundamental question, what we're seeing around the world are democracies around the world failing when social media becomes a reorganizing principle of society. Why is it that democracies are particularly vulnerable to the infrastructure of social media platforms? What is so destructive to democracies specifically? Well, there are two things. China is not, is not sensitive as much because they control the media, as well as they have the ability to make decisions around social media, which they have, and put some very interesting policies in place that we might not agree with. But I, I think it's worth noting how they are like prohibiting kids from spending more than X hours on social media or gaming. There is a realization, there is a danger, but they are able to go and counter it. And what they are doing is countering it to build an authoritarian regime and strengthen it. In democracy, it's much harder. Democracy is built on a discourse, on a public square, where you exchange ideas. But right now, we live in a completely different world and sets of assumptions. You know, one of my closest partners in the company is sitting on the opposite political spectrum with me. And when we do sit down and talk, we see how we both deeply care about the country. We both deeply believe that the country is on the edge of a civil war. But the set of facts that he is building on is a radical different set of facts. And to a large extent, the abilities that we used to have of a public square when we argued, when we balanced each other, where facts were facts, doesn't exist anymore. And again, it goes back to how do we maximize attention? How many hours have you spent in the last years watching documentaries? How many hours have you spent watching fiction movies? Fiction movies attract our attention. We enjoy them. It's a great story. The same thing about causes social media. Fiction and lies works great. And when you scale them, and that's what social media da does, it scales and it repeats those lies, they start feeling true. So we live in a world right now that is broken by alternative conflicting realities. And what I think many of us are saying is that the underlying cause is the unintended consequences of an economy built by computer trying to maximize our attention. I'm curious because you brought up this friend of yours who sits on the opposite position on the political aisle. And I'm I'm curious, is this as you see it, and you're in conversation with people who see it differently, is this a both sides problem in the context of the political left and the political right? 
believing in fictions, uh, becoming polarized, only existing in their information bubble? Or are there fundamental differences between how the political left and the political right mobilize around information, perhaps reject information that does not cohere with the information bubble that they find themselves in? Are there differences in the infrastructures of these two different political parties, or are they doing much of the same things on opposite sides of the spectrum? And it's a really good question, and I've been trying to find some interesting analysis of it. I think we intuitively know that left and right politically tends to come from different emotional personality traits. Uh, left tends to be more progressive, right tend to be more pro uh, conservative, and these are emotions and personality traits that's underlying it. Considering that so much of the social media manipulation is based on emotions, I would expect that while it affects both left and right, the impact and emotions that are being generated in the left-right are not necessarily identical. I've not seen any research on it, and I found it really interesting because it seems like you want to keep the attention economy as a by, not, to, not to make it a partisan issue, but a bipartisan issue. So we can find a way to solve it that addresses both left and right. But we both know that the left and right are using it in different ways. We do not fully understand the psychological mechanisms of how it impacts left and right differently. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned civil war as the brink that you believe we may be on right now. And is that where you think we will end up? What do you think is the next step that we are taking in this particular moment? I guess the question is here, walk us down what you think happens if we do nothing to change the existing infrastructure. Where are we headed in terms of the state of our democracy? Is it truly civil war? How long does it take us to get there? <laughs> is there is there an interim period or are we kind of headed straight inevitably for this kind of divisive clash? So, so I'll, I'll take it step at a time and I'm going to be a little bit provocative uh, because I think we should be. You said the U.S. democracy. Why do you think the U.S. is still a democracy? You know, Andy Grove, in his Only the Paranoid Survive, has a metaphor that says, you know, to make really hard assessment of a situation, step out of a building, forget everything you know, walk in with a fresh lens and look at the facts. If you walked into another country and looked at the federal system that exists in the US today with the electoral system, would you call this a democracy? If you looked on the state level and the gerrymandering, would you go and say that's a democracy? What would the U.S. have said if it looked at another country and tried to assess it? I am not sure that we would go and say that, you know, that's a democracy. We will be very critical of this kind of a political system. I think that if we take a cold, hard look in the U.S. today, um, the political system, the ability to make decisions politically, is broken. Uh, definitely on the federal level, some states are better than others, but it's also breaking on the state level. And unfortunately, it's one of those cracks in society that once it happens, um, I don't see how we can really solve it. And there's lots of talk by both sides, but do I see any way in which this crack, this dysfunctional 
being literally, you know, you, some will consider January 6th to be a civil war or the first step of a civil war. I think a lot of are horrified what will happen in the 22 or 24 elections. So from a, the state of the US, I'm quite pessimistic. I do believe that when it comes to social media and attention economy, this is a global problem. And we talked about it being a global problem. So the regulations are much more likely to come, the regulations that's effective are much more likely to come from other countries that on one side have been close or on the edge of the falling into this problem, but have a relatively functional legislator and have a deep technology and business understanding of the problem which means I think we are likely to see Australia, the Nordic countries, Israel, and Europe as the places where smart legislation to address social media will come out of. Yeah, I think that the term that has been applied to the United States post-January 6, 2021 was a backsliding democracy. But I asked the question about what we could do to repair the United States democracy under the premise of our conversation today, which is looking at the nature of democracy. And I think your your point raises a couple of important questions, which is, you know, on the one hand, we're talking about how to craft legislation and how to craft regulation and how to, in a sense, fix, amend, or perhaps uh, inhibit social media from further damaging uh, a, a democratic process in the United States. But now your answer is making me think that perhaps this is a larger project of not only uh, fixing the tech, but also critically reimagining the state of our public as as a republic itself. I'm wondering now, can these two things go hand in hand? In other words, does our attention now on social media and the need to fix social media's challenge to democratic processes globally have the possibility to inspire new investments in changing the way we go about understanding and perhaps uh, transforming the state of our democracy in the United States? I guess I'm trying to hold on to an optimistic kernel here in saying that perhaps this catastrophe with social media can be a kind of lever that would promote uh, a new uh, intentional investigation and reinvigoration of democracy. Or is that being too optimistic? Uh, one of the most interesting, not often talked about, and it relates also to, you know, the, the media is the message, is the fact that decision-making processes drive the quality of decision you get. So there are ways of countering it. You know, we have countered smoking. We've countered other social problems that were, you know, look at what happened after the Industrial Revolution, how we built the modern social welfare system to kind of balance some of the dangers of the Industrial Revolution. The problem is that we had a much more functioning decision-making process. What I am afraid is happening in the US, there is no functioning decision-making process, not anymore. So we will likely see solution emerge in other countries. And unfortunately, we need to hope that those solutions, uh, similar to how GDPR ended up impacting people in the US, will have the same impact on US citizens' experience of social media. 
This is a fascinating question for me because I've heard you argue elsewhere that your approach to solving these problems would require a multidisciplinary form of cooperation. You will not, by the way, get a rebuttal from me. Uh, I enthusiastically endorse all solutions that bring as many people of uh, diverse intellectual perspectives to the table. But I'm interested in your reasons for thinking that. Why is a multidisciplinary approach so critical in your view? And how would we go about building such an approach in practical terms? I'm interested in the fact that you're bringing in Australia, Israel, other countries to uh, provide models for thinking about how we might approach it here in the United States. In the context of building an approach to combat some of the harm caused by social media, are we looking at a national approach? Are we looking at an international approach? Is there an existing governing body, United Nations, for example, that is already internationally organized that might become a place in which this happens for an international collaboration? Or, or are we thinking about something that must be fundamentally new that cannot be accommodated by existing political structures? What's your take? Jeff Bezos has it right. He calls those pizza team to take on new challenges. You limit the number of people in the room to the amount of people who can, well, can be fed by a single pizza. But they need to come from different disciplines. Like somebody who has written, finished a law school, thinking, you know, because I'm a lawyer, I can write legislation on the topic is quite naive. Uh, if, if you think about the definition of the problem, if we are saying attention economy and social media impact on democracy, think about the breadth of what we are taking. Attention economy, attention is all about psychology. Economy is economy. Social media is about product and technology. And democracy is about law and constitutional law. You have all of those different disciplines that needs to come together. Some countries are going to put the right people in the room, listen to the right uh, scholars and innovators and thinkers within their country, and come up with the right regulations. And as it happens, it's likely that, and they're already talking about it, uh, cooperate with other countries. There's been a very interesting presentation by the Director General of the Israeli Justice Minister, going through comparing the initiative in different countries, analyzing the problem, uh, that technology is uh, bringing in some of the lessons and some of the initial early thoughts about some of the stuff that they can do. So I'm optimistic that we will end up seeing some of those uh, regulatory approach coming from multiple different countries. Those countries will cooperate with each other and we will slowly see um, this being addressed and the US unfortunately will become the follower or copier uh, in that area rather than the leader. And again, I just have to ask in terms of international collaboration, simply because international legal structures and regulatory structures are typically you know, vested in practical terms for social media in the form of national laws. So international collaboration on this becomes very hard. For example, in Europe, you have the right to be forgotten, something that we in the United States do not have. And that right provides individuals the permission 
to ask Google, for example, to take down information that it might be harmful or defamatory to you that somebody else has posted on the internet without your consent or that you have posted on the internet and now feel it would be defamatory to, to you. Uh, in the context of China, we have laws and regulations that certain information that goes against the government cannot be shared. It makes something like an international cooperative around, around regulation very difficult. There are, of course, international legal forms that provide the means for international collaboration around regulation, but I'm not sure that they're the right organizations to, to structure this. And so I'm asking <laughs> you, you know, to imagine what it would look like ideally for a kind of cooperative uh, lens to be put onto this issue or a cooperative uh, governing body. How would we go about building that? What would it look like? We're not. You're setting the expectations too high. You know, the, the international cooperation is going to be the justice minister in Israel chatting with the justice minister in Australia about some of the upcoming regulation and coordinating as they do it. So the uh, reaction from the social media companies can be balanced. Uh, just like Australia took some initiatives, things have learned some of the lessons and next time they will collaborate with a few other countries. It's, it's going to be between countries who feel the pain and are able to move and take the initiative to counter it. I found it uh, really interesting that when the Israeli prime minister talked in the UN, uh, I think that was about half a year ago, he, in front of all of the global leaders in the UN, he brought up the topic of uh, the threats that uh, the attention economy and social media has to democracies worldwide. So more and more countries are realizing it. It is a complicated topic. And what we're going to see is my like-minded countries cooperating with each other to put legislation in place. And we'll see countries in a very positive way copying legislations at work and bringing it over to them. We'll see countries that stay behind waiting and then bringing other legislation. To some extent, it's a global crisis similar to COVID. And what we have seen happening during COVID is our country started copying the best practices, the, the innovative approach that other countries have had. So I'm cautiously optimistic that we'll see the same happening uh, on the international level. What about the role of the corporations in, in all of this? I ask this because you have an article titled, descriptively, I might add, Twitter fact-checking Trump, good intentions, wrong approach, and a proposal for how to do it right. So I guess my question is, what did Twitter get wrong? I'll start with what they got right. They got right that understanding that fact-checking is a critical thing to do. And augmenting media, not removing media, but augmenting media with fact-checking has a huge potential. It, it breaks the silos. It brings two conflicting opinions. It brings credibility and trust. So the approach of... Uh, encouraging and pushing fact-checking is absolutely the right approach. Uh, and that's one of the proposals in, in the article I just published to how to address uh, and break down the silos. What they got wrong is Twitter fact-checking. The decision on what is a fact, what's not a fact, should not be in the government hand, which scares all of us and one of the main challenges in here. But considering the global power that Twitter or uh, Zuckerberg has, it shouldn't be in their hands either. It should be something that is built into uh, the platform and brought into 
independent non-profit organizations and this organization can be from the left on the right but it should absolutely not be given to Zuckerberg or Twitter to become our fact checkers yeah I guess I, I I'm curious I want to push on this a little bit because I think we're largely aligned that we don't want the government telling us exactly what facts are that seems I teach every every quarter in my ethical technology across 1984 I come away every time I read 1984 more and more wary of a government uh, deciding what is fact and what is not fact but on the other hand as you rightly point out it should not be Twitter that is deciding what is and what is not appropriate certainly I'm very glad on a personal uh, evaluation of it that Twitter made the decision to take down President Trump's statement as I think Amazon Web Services made the correct decision in taking down Parler and Google made the right decision in taking down Parler from the apps that you can download off of Google or Amazon Web Service. My, I think, nit here is that I, I don't think, and I think you share this with me, that social media companies should be the ones addressing the problem of fake news on their platform, harmful speech on their platform. And so that leads me to the question of who should be addressing or regulating the problem of fake news or harmful speech. Again, you know, you and I agree that it should not be government regulators, I think. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, I think we both agree that it should not be the corporations making this decision either, uh, especially if they have a financial stake in the matter, which they typically do. But then I'm curious, like who these third party regulators actually are. How do you decide that somebody is qualified to make that kind of decision? And what I see happening over and over again is that whoever does become this kind of third body qualifier is immediately politicized. They're considered to be partisan for whatever justification one side or the other has for their partisanship. And then they become uh, very quickly ineffective. So how do we, how do you, I suppose, go about making that kind of qualification of who would be a good third party regulator? What does that look like? I'll, I'll start by saying, you know, let's not best make best the enemy of good. There's no perfect solution. Some people consider somebody to be a great fact checker. Some saying it's also. Some say it's complete garbage. But there is a middle ground. There is a good that can bring us forward. And there is a group of fact checkers. And there is a, a really interesting initiative done by the Duke's Reporters Lab that try to create a database of global fact-checking organization, not looking at the specifics of what the results are or opinions, but looking at the methods in how they work. And I encourage everybody to go into the Duke's, uh, what's called Reporters Lab, and look how they have collected a, an amazing database of fact-checkers, and those fact-checkers, yes, they have different biases to the left and right, and this biases is different in different countries. But what they are looking at when they try to decide who is a fact-checker and who is not a fact-checker is consistently reviewing statements of both sides. Do they examine discrete uh, claims? Uh, do they reach conclusions? Is there a transparency around who's funding the fact-checking organization? Do they explore, uh, explain their methods and sources? Now, the nice thing is that when it comes to social media, when we augment with fact-checking, we don't necessarily have to augment it with only one fact-checking. We can very easily, and that's some of the items in the proposal I put, we can put the fact-checking from the two different organizations that review the specific media one side by side below the items. Again, this is breaking the silos and opens our minds. 
like I encourage both people on the right and the left, go up on the other side of the media, look at their fact-checking, and, you know, you learn this way. I've learned this way by looking at some of the fact-checkers more on the right side. So the ability to bring together fact-checking, different fact-checking organization, and put the results on top of media and create it in an independent way. So it's not Zuckerberg, it's not the country, but it's those organization. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. Is it better than what we have today? Absolutely, yes. One thing that I really appreciate about your writing in general is that you not only critique the social media ecosystem, but you actually offer solutions. In fact, the uh, article that is the topic of our conversation today, titled Four Proposals to Neutralize Social Media's Threat to Democracy, uh, does the exact opposite of what we academics sometimes tend to do, which is critique. I wanted to ask you about some of those solutions. Um, what do you, what solutions, and I think you're, the regulation uh, you've talked about exemplifies one, but I'm I'm curious, broadly speaking, what solutions do you propose to neutralizing social media's threat to society? I'm uh, very much uh, in a political way, you'd probably call me a centrist. And I believe that, you know, there are different types of regulations, but one of the most powerful approaches to regulation is by nudging people, not forcing them to do something, letting them still have options, but giving them the right information in the right way that pushes them in the right direction. And the proposal, and you know, this has been popularized by a, a Cus Sunstein when he was in Chicago and Harvard and his years in the White House, fellow in the book Nudge about the healthcare regulation. And this approach is about rather than putting the government clerk in the center making the decisions of what's allowed in law or not allowed, it's about saying that by exposing the right information, you are going to change the trajectory and change how people uh, think. And that's the underlying approach of the article. And the second approach is, you know, let's look at what we call the physical life, the physical city square, and what can we bring from it? So the proposals, the first two sounds minor, but you know, they have a value in terms of nudging. How big is the value? None of us know. Do they have a big downside? Probably not. Uh, can they be regulated? Absolutely, yes. The first one says, you know, let's start making people aware of how much money is being made from their attention. So Facebook needs to send me an email in the end of the month. You know, this month we made $15 from your five hours of attention a, a day or three hours a day, whatever was my consumption, the number of ads they put in front of me and thanking me for my business. Suddenly I know how much money was made off my attention during the last month. Uh, it completely changes the awareness and it builds a trajectory toward later on having either an attention tax, which Nobel laureate Romer proposed, or mandating that there is a subscription option, not just a, an attention advertisement-based service. Second proposal goes, you know, just like in real life, in a, I know who's a real person or who's anonymous and their names. So there's no reason that a VIP, who's a verified user, who gets to verify their identity right now is decided by executive in Twitter or Facebook. I can't verify my identity because Facebook doesn't want to do it. Let me verify my identity. 
let it be so I know when I'm communicating with somebody in Facebook, if this person is a real person who verified their ID or it's not. At the same time, we should also request that the platform allow fully anonymous accounts so whistleblowers can and still exist because they are crucial for society. Simple, easy to do, marginal cost of zero for both the plat for the platforms to do it, but it start nudging our awareness, people's awareness in the right direction. So these were uh, the first two proposals. The third proposal got much more into fact-checking that says, you know, let's build a mechanism we dis discussed earlier today about uh, when there is a public media article, people can click request verification. Fact-checkers get notification in real time that, hey, somebody asked for it, obviously anonymously, so there's no privacy issues. And if they decide to do fact-checking on an article, immediately the fact-checking results are always displayed when this article is displayed. If two fact-checkers had uh, results, they are displayed side by side. It starts building and promoting fact-checking. The fourth one goes around, you know, we need more transparency. We need to understand what's happening. Rather than, you know, the current proposal in front of the houses create some special committees that will allow specific researchers access to undescribed data in a closed room and all kinds of restrictions is going and saying, you know, let's have data around uh, the attention receipts widely open. As long as it's anonymous, that should be made publicly open. Let researchers, let other companies leverage this data to build better services and better experience for people. Same about media regulation. Let's have in real time the information that something has been shared or forwarded. We don't have to say who did it because we need to keep it anonymous. But suddenly we have a media graph that says, wow, this item has been shared a hundred times in the last 60 seconds. And that means existing media or fake checkers or researchers can go and understand how different media is being propagated and affects uh, parts of the society. So again, it builds trans transparency. It enables a better ecosystem. Does it necessarily solve? No, but it nudges us. It moves the trajectory in the right direction. Yeah, I really appreciate the precision of these directives. It's, it's very clear solutions. I could talk to you for a very long time about each and every one of these four points in the proposal, but I wanted to maybe advance my self-interest here as a researcher and just ask a few questions about number four, just for listeners, I want to recap it, making information about how social media platforms operate, what their algorithms look like, how they collect data and what data they collect, et cetera, um, make it all of that public to researchers. And as a researcher, as I said, I have a dog in the fight. So I wanted to pick up on that point and ask a few additional questions. What kind of questions should researchers ask in your view? How would access to this data transform what researchers might know or learn about the attention economy? And how would researchers translate that knowledge into change? I mean, I guess my consideration here is that we kind of already know the harm that social media causes. Researchers are pretty well aware of the damage that social media causes on a multiple different levels, many of which that you cite, the increased suicide and depression rates in teens, the political polarization of our country, and so on. We already know all of those harms. We know them without the access to whatever private data we might 
might be able to eventually, under your proposal, be able to look at. We know all of it and we're still on social media. So what would really change in your view with more knowledge? There are a couple of things I, I want to comment on. You were describing the proposal. You had the world of how do the algorithms operate? And that's absolutely not part of the proposal. I, I think there are attempts to kind of say, how do the algorithm operate uh, are naive. This is com proprietary company information. We shouldn't be trying to dive and have government or try to research the algorithm, or we should not have asked the companies to make the algorithm public. What we should absolutely ask for and demand that is publicly accessible is what the algorithm results are. And there is a really important distinction here. And I'm thinking around, the best analogy here is food labeling. We mandated that companies food a food label about what's in the food. If you consume the food, what will be the impact on you? We didn't tell them, please put a label that says how to make the food or how you're making the food. We asked the results of the be exposed and publicly. Um, and that's what this uh, proposal is about, doing it in a 21st century way of, you know, live data feeds that are publicly open and people can subscribe on, uh, companies can subscribe on. And it has two different sides of information transparency. There is information transparency around the economics, the individual receipts in an anon anonymized way. So we can see if addiction gets stronger or weaker. We can see how it's affected in different zip codes. We can see how the money generated through attention is overall in a cumulative way changing over time. And that opens the door to an awareness uh, that does not exist today about how much money is being made. Uh, you know, Goodman has the analogy of uh, being mined out of us. This is companies mining gold in a unlimited amounts with us us realizing how much gold we are giving away. Let's put those numbers out in the public in an open way. The second part is about media. Again, we, do, we need to keep privacy, but there is no reason that we should not make the information that this article just got reshared, reshared again, reshared in a specific zip code. We don't need to say who did it, but the ability to understand what media is propagating throughout the population is essential. You know, it has huge impact on elections, it has huge impact on our democracy, and all of this right now is done behind closed doors. Rather than say, you know, let's put the government in the center to let specific researchers have access to it. No, make it publicly open. There is absolutely nothing in this that is really the way I propose it, goes to the proprietary information of the company. It's the results of what the, comp the, the company's business and those should be public, just like food labeling. And then the outcome of the research should also presumably then be public. Should it be public with the intention of allowing, let's just go with the word democratic, public to be able to access it? Should it be available for regulators to be able to build policy based on it? What's the outcome for you of the researchers creating knowledge? It's multiple outcomes and it's not just research. You know, if we put the attention receipts out in the public, 
Some companies might build a business about creating a personalized report to us with the trends and recommendations. If Facebook is forced to put public feeds that says when media is reshared and retweeted, and not just fact checker, but Google might decide to take this data and build a counter service that makes it uh, more factual or brings it together to us to create a better news experience. It levels the playing field between those companies. They are not going to like it, especially not Facebook, but it is, I think, opens the door to so many both research and opportunities to build better experience for users when the downside of it, the way it's proposed, is minimal. The companies will lose very little. Uh, There is no government that we put in the center, but data that's being openly accessed in a way that protects privacy and lets NGOs, researchers, startups, or large companies create new services focused on consumers. I think we have time for one last question. And one of the reasons that I really like talking to people who write about proposed policy is that my my tendency is to say if somebody's writing about proposed policy, they have to be at the core a little bit optim- more optimistic than those of us who write critique. If you're writing policy, then you're saying that there's a way out. There's a better way. There's a possibility for a better way. So my question is oriented to ask you about your optimism. Are you optimistic about democracy's health, not just our presumable backsliding democracy in the United States, but the concept of democracy, the perseverance of democracy worldwide. Are you optimistic? Why or why not? Thank you. That's a great question. And, you know, at Yale, I got to study under Professor Paul Kennedy, the great historian who wrote uh, The Rise and Fall of Great Powers. And there's a certain acceptance that comes after you read it that, you know, a great power is being built up and after some time they end up declining. That's human nature. That's the world we live in. The other part that I learned at Apple was at the time we were fighting to be number one in the smartphone industry. And I think it was Phil who said something along the lines in a meeting that our DNA is not about number one. We are not about being the number one in smartphone. We are about building the best experience with four users on phones. And I think there is an analogy here for the U.S. The U.S. was never destined to be a great power. Yes, we are in a decline as a world superpower, and this is not going to change. But the U.S. was never destined to be the world superpower. That's not why it was founded. So our goal should be to manage the decline, but stick to what the U.S. is about, which is government of the people, by the people, for the people. And if we realize that, then we have something much better to focus on. Or if I want to rephrase your question, it will actually be, I'm optimistic because I believe that we will end up seeing in the 21st century, other countries becoming what the US was for the 20th century, which is a shining city upon a hill. Which country is going to emerge as the 21st century shining city up on a hill? Which country will know how to embrace technology and media and turn it into a slave for humanity rather than the other way? We can all have different opinions on. But I am optimistic that we are going to see a couple of countries emerging as this uh, 21st century shining city up on a hill. 
Thank you very much, Ron.